Hi, everybody. Welcome to the September 20th, 2019 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Nizzuti. Thank you very much for joining us. Let's get started with a quick take on the RTD board reconsidering its no vote to selling its empty lot near the state capitol to create a park for a potential Medal of Honor museum. Patty Cahoon from Westward, they've already voted no, so they haven't yet to change that vote officially, but both Governor Polis and Mayor Hancock have said, maybe we can reconsider this because I'm not sure if this makes the news until one of the directors wonders out loud at a public meeting, I don't even know how many Medal of Honor winners there are, and we become, anyway, what do you think is going to happen? Well, first of all, we look like a laughing stock, and that is not going to change. But adding insult to injuries, we have got this ridiculous RTD corner where they built the new Civic Center station, which right now is a gravel pit and some asphalt. So a museum to anything you would think would be an improvement. We have museums in Colorado to washing machines, to clowns. I would say Medal of Honor winners, of which there are over 3,500, I would say Medal of Honors winners would be a greater good, but not according to RTD board member Kate Williams, who I'm guessing we'll be hearing a lot more about as people think maybe she should be getting off the bus. <laughs> <laughs> well said, as always, Patty. Also join us, Michael Fields, Executive Director at Colorado Rising Action. Great to have you back. Uh, Michael, what do you think? I mean, this, this definitely changes the tenor of us going for this kind of museum. When you hear these kinds of comments, we could battle back and forth of what uh, the, the, it, it should look like. But when it's this callous, I think it really changes the tenor of the debate. What do you think? Yeah, I think it was, uh, it was embarrassing for the RTD board uh, coming out with this. These are Medal of Honor recipients. These are the people that, you know, the helicopter goes down, they shoot, you know, off the enemy and, and protect their people. Uh, they jump on grenades. I mean, these are really, really uh, great people. Uh, the fact that they came out and said that, that one RTD board member and saying, I don't know if, if they deserve this, um, I'm, I'm glad the governor and the mayor came in and, and said something about it and told them to reconsider. I think they will reconsider, and I think they should give them free advertisements uh, for the next 20 years for, for that museum. Eric Sondran, political analyst. Uh, one of the odder arguments against this I had heard, I think it was Natalie Menton, one of the other RTD board directors, that said, well, if we make it into a park, it's just going to be a place for all these uh, homeless people because look across the street, that's a park, and there's homeless folks there. It's, it, we're, we're, <laughs> we're, 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 we're damning what could be because of solving another problem down the road. Uh, did RTD step into as big of a mess as I think they have? Oh yeah, they stepped into a mess. It's not, it's not virgin territory for RTD. They're 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 used to uh, used to messes. Kate Williams' comment, as Patty said, was just inexplicable. I mean, uh, perhaps not the sharpest tack in in that particular uh, drawer. They will reconsider with this. Pre- I mean, with the scrutiny, the media, and Hancock and Polis. Uh, I think this thing is now a slam dunk. But to Kate Williams, it's not a question of how many Medal of Honor winners there are to fill up a museum. It's the fact for all of us to go into the museum and respect the sacrifices they made. Natasha Gardner, Articles Editor, 5280, rounds up the panel for us. It feels like a great opportunity for Denver. It's no slam dunk if we get it. There's lots of cities trying to get this, but it seems to be a pretty cool uh, jewel in the crown of Denver if we're able to get it. Well, Denver and the state, I mean, you think of the state's connection to the armed forces, and that's just a long history that will also be part of our future as well. Um, I remember being around this table when the renovations were done at the RTD station, and the gravel pit just sort of became revealed that that's what it was going to be. And that's years of so we're we're flashing forward to now and it's still there at this heart this intersection in the middle of this major metro this is the the best that we can do now i collected a lot of rocks as a kid so i'm not one to disparage gravel but 
come on, there's something else that we could do at the heart of our city to really show what we're about and who we are. It's completely off-brand with Denver. So I hope we can at least come to some conclusion that doesn't involve just gravel and asphalt. The ACLU of Colorado released a report this week alleging maltreatment and medical negligence at the Aurora Immigration Detention Facility. The facility is run by ICE and its private contractor, the GEO Group. 85% of those held at the facility are waiting for asylum or other legal proceedings. On Thursday night, anti-ICE protesters marched to the home of the warden of the facility, resulting in a response from counter-protesters and the Aurora police in riot gear. Uh, Patty, this situation just got uglier throughout the week. You have a, an ugly response, I think, in the protests and how that went down last night. But that's in response to a pretty ugly report that included a detainee that was held, who he had lived in uh, the United States for over 40 years, had a green card, and died in the facility. So there's a plenty of ugliness to go around. Where does it go from here? Well, it goes into a protest tomorrow, which is maybe going to be the ugliest yet. You know, the ACLU report, most of that had already been out. We reported the death over, uh, it was almost two years ago, of that one man who was not given the medical treatment he should have been given. ICE and GEO, which is a multi-billion dollar corporation which runs it, did not release the documents they were supposed to. They, they were slapped earlier th- this summer for violating provisions that are set up federally for detention centers. You know, no one loves um, coddling prisoners, whether they're in, people in immigration or in Colorado prisons. Whenever we write stories about that, people get very upset. But the fact is there are certain standards that we have agreed on federally as what civilized people do, and we're not meeting them at GEO. So there was a dog and pony show there last month where they neglected to really address some of these issues like overcrowding, medical issues. The protests started back, um, there have been protests going on for months, but the big protest was with Michelle Malkin, which was pro-ICE Labor Day. That got the protesters out. Then last night the protesters went to the warden's home. Now we're going to have dueling protests probably tomorrow out by GEO. I would argue that it's never good to go to someone's home for a variety of reasons. Not fair to the neighbors, not fair to the families. This came up with Occupy Denver, too, and Tammy Dorr from the Denver Partnership. Let's keep it professional and keep it where the business really is. And in this case, it's Aurora, where Geo is collecting millions. Michael, it seems to get, have some, I guess, odd political overtones here because you have folks who are coming out saying we're, we're pro-ICE regardless of what's going on. You can be pro-immigration laws and pro-immigration uh, standards and still find fault if it's not being held up. It's like being supportive of police, but if there's a rogue cop, you, don't, you can still be pro-police and against a rogue cop. Uh, are the political ramifications of this going to get worse before it gets better? Yeah, I think it's very polarizing. You can see from the, the different protests on both sides, um, you know, this ACLU report did highlight eight cases, um, you know, some of which, is, as you mentioned, uh, were disturbing. And, uh, you know, if, if a facility like that is not, uh, you know, up to standard, then that should change and they should work on that. Um, but to your point, too, yeah, if there's a rogue cop, you, you talk about that. If there is, uh, you also have to abide by immigration laws or change them if you want to. And so I think there's a lot uh, of discussion, of healthy discussion that can go around this. Um, 
know, this is a facility that's been around 30 years. They've had tens of thousands of people in, in, in and out of there. Um, you know, we want top-notch medical treatment there. We want good facilities uh, there. But I, I do have a big problem with what happened last night uh, with going to the warden's house. We're in a state uh, that six years ago, uh, you know, a person went to the, the Department of Corrections head and, and murdered him uh, at his home. I think that homes, that families should be off the table. It was peaceful yesterday. A few people got arrested. Uh, but I think that's over the line when you're scaring families and, and really separating it from, you know, the issue that you have, which is go ahead and protest at the facility or at the Capitol or wherever you want to go and have this discussion. Uh, don't do it at people's houses. Eric, this is a federal facility, but it's in Aurora, and we have local folks protesting this national issue. Who steps in to try to at least address the issue? Because it's only seemingly going to get worse, but who, who's in charge of trying to at least uh, bring some sort of conversation or some peace to the situation? Well, I think that's the problem, Dominic, is there's sort of no center these days around that issue. It's just the latest issue that we have in this country where everyone runs to the polls. And I'm not talking about Polish immigrants here, but everyone uh, runs to their polls. And the anti-immigrant crowd, fueled by the current occupant of the White House, fueled by a lot of conservative media, is really demonizing a lot of people who don't deserve to be demonized. But then you have the left taking the bait, hook, line, and sinker, and, you know, if you listen to the Julian Castro's of the world or some of the other Democratic presidential candidates, they're basically advocating a policy that is tantamount to an open border policy. Any country needs to have borders. That doesn't mean that people should not be treated humanely. I'm the son of two refugees to, who came to this country, uh, refugees from Nazi Germany, in a different era. But you need some rationality around this issue. You need some calmer voices, not the hotheads. I think we can all stipulate, as Michael and um, Patty stipulated, to go in people's homes is off-limit. It's across the line. Uh, it's bad form. But whether we're talking about Aurora or whether we're talking about this macro issue around the country, you need some common sense voices who aren't all in with either Donald Trump or all in with the Julian Castros of the world. Natasha Aurora is about to elect a new mayor. Mm -hmm. It's a pretty uh, hotly contested race. Does this become an issue for that race? Because all these things are happening in their soon-to-be town that they'll be running. Absolutely. I, I think this is a perfect example of where all politics are local. I mean, Colorado is hundreds of miles away from any international border. This is a federal issue. This is an international relations issue. But it is something that we feel in our communities every single day, and particularly for people who are living in Aurora. Um, you know, there, there are people who are at this facility, but there's also community members who work at this facility, as we're talking about, but there's people who are protesting this facility who also live in our community. So this conversation absolutely has to be had um, on a very local level, and I think it will be something that is discussed in those Aurora races, but I think we're going to see it um, more and more in other races as well. We've already seen the Denver City Council sort of tackle this topic as well, and that's going to be an ongoing conversation as we look at what we do to move forward with funding and, and halfway house and what those programs are going to look like. So this is just the latest chapter of what is going to be an ongoing conversation, probably through next November and beyond. Denver Mayor Michael Hancock and Council Member Robin Kanich released a proposal this week to raise the city's minimum wage to $15 an hour by 2021. Hancock Kanich claimed that this will directly benefit 100,000 workers in Denver. The Colorado Restaurant Association is leading the opposition to the proposal. 
Uh, Michael, this uh, all becomes possible, becomes possible because of a new state law. So now a city can make this kind of a point themselves. Do you think this will go over in Denver? Uh, I think it will. I think you look at what's happening in Denver in general, there's a lot of uh, movement, uh, progressive movement on a lot of issues. Uh, this is going to be one of them. Uh, I think in a lot of ways they're trying to score political points. You look at uh, you know, what's happening. You have Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren up there saying we need to raise the minimum wage, and then you have localities running with that. Uh, but I think there's, there's basic economics that you run into, too. Um, you know, there is some kind of cost to, to raising the minimum wage. Either some people are going to have to get fired. Uh, there might be a decrease in employee benefits. There could be it could just be passed on to us, which it will be as consumers. Um, and then, you know, the, the prices for restaurant food ends up being like it is at the airport or at a baseball game, and people don't want to deal with that, and so they stay out of the city and go other places. So I think there are economic consequences. I think that needs to be studied more. Uh, you know, the CBO nationally came out with a study. If we raised it to $15 across the country, the impact it would have, it would raise wages for some people, but, you know, close to a million people or a little over a million would be out of work. And so I think uh, the, the city needs to look very seriously at this before, uh, you know, making any kind of move to, to $15. Eric, do you see any political ramifications? Uh, obviously, Mayor Hancock is in his third and last term, but uh, I guess between uh, other politicians having to tackle this, do you see this becoming a greater political fight in 2020? Probably not. I mean, in Denver, I, I, you know, I know of no proposal in Denver that is lined with good intentions and liberal thought that doesn't fly and that doesn't advance you politically. So I would assume this uh, probably, as Michael indicated, probably goes through in Denver. That doesn't necessarily mean it's a good idea. The laws of marketplaces will ultimately take hold. We've seen what's happened in Seattle, where they passed a minimum wage. It's now 12, but it's on its way up to 15, and then north of 15. And in fast food uh, establishments and other, there's been a cutback in hours of, of employee hours of 6 to 7%. So, yes, they're making more per hour, but they're working fewer hours. There's also a movement afoot nationally, particularly in the restaurant industry. Uh, it's what we're going to see in this country over the next 10 years, AI, artificial intelligence. In the case of robots, in the case of ordering by kiosks instead of through employees, uh, if you're a business person, you're going to look to cut costs. And if government's going to mandate increased costs, uh, you're, you, the market will find ways to cope with this and will find ways around it. Good intentions are wonderful, but they usually have unintended consequences, and that is the story of the minimum wage. Natasha, 5280 writes a lot about businesses in Denver. Do you think there's a bigger fight against this that the mayor and councilwoman can each uh, understand? Uh, I think they're probably pretty aware that there's going to be a lot of discussion about this. I and mean, we're going to have some time to do that. This will go before council um, probably in November. Um, I think it's important to just note that there's never a good time to raise wages, probably from a business perspective. I mean, who wants to take that on? But we're living in a metro where the cost of living has grown exponentially, um, whether that's housing, whether that's food, whether that's just the cost of getting to and from their work, whether you're taking a car or taking RTD. So when you look at that as as a, as a politician, I could see that they're hearing from their constituents that it's just hard to, to afford to live in the city, and this is something that they could actually affect. Now, if you pull out your calculator and actually do the math, $15 an hour or a little bit more than that isn't a lot 
it isn't a lot to be able to live in the city, to work in the city, and to raise kids, have additional members in your household, let alone if somebody gets sick. So I, I'm not saying that 15 is a magic number, and I don't want to, um, you know, there's certainly people who live in the city on less than that. Um, but it's an interesting question to ask if we want to be a metro who does better than that. And if Denver did pass this, we would join um, uh, about a dozen or so other cities around the, the country that are looking at similar increases. So lots to discuss here, lots to parse out, and it's not a magic solution to fix our affordable housing crisis, um, but it is, it is a, a tool to move towards that. Patty, uh, businesses don't pay for extra costs out of the goodness of their heart. They're usually passed along or there's work, uh, uh, labor cuts, just as Mike was talking about. Is Denver about to become more expensive? Well, of course. Enjoy your $20 hamburger. This looks, this is reminding me of the carbon tax proposal that came forward. Sounds good in theory, but was really going to hit smaller businesses hard. And this is the same thing with the restaurants. It gets pretty technical on how certain positions are exempt and how tips are shared. Clearly, Robin Kanish and Michael Hancock didn't really take that into account when they made this proposal. Ed Lover, who's sometimes at this table, did a great job kind of very quickly pulling it out and saying this might not even be legal the way it was done. I can see that the mayor and Robin Kanish will have to sit down with the Colorado Restaurant Association because their points are really good. Legally, they need to work out this tipping law to make it even equitable, even if this minimum wage thing goes through with their front of the house and back of the house employees. But when you look at how many people are employed in restaurants in this town and how the restaurants really contribute to quality of life in Denver, I think the restaurants will have a lot of sympathy on their side. Results were released this week from the audit of Colorado's Civil Rights Division, stemming from the fallout of the Masterpiece Cake Shop case. The state auditor found the division was unacceptably slow and non-transparent. Almost 40% of the division's investigations missed statutory deadlines, and none of them had the appropriate documentation. Eric, as division audits go, this one was pretty scathing. It didn't look uh, good for it. Do you see some action from the legislature, from Governor Polis, from all of the above? What happens from here? Well, you would hope so. I mean, obviously, with Democrats controlling the legislature, with Jared Polis being a Democrat, they're pressured by a lot of constituencies who have a definite interest in the workings of the Civil Rights Commission. But uh, I forget the words you use, slow, and I forget the other one. Non-transparent. And, and non-transparent, uh, compared to what the U.S. Supreme Court had to say uh, uh, about the Colorado Civil Rights Commission 18 months or 24 months ago in the Masterpiece Cake Shop decision, uh, those aren't actually the most damning things we've read lately about this uh, particular operation, because the more damning things were about you know, bias and, uh, and, and obviously having a, a preordained agenda. This needs to be cleaned up, one hopes, as a regulatory agency. It's under the purview of, of Governor Polis and, and his appointee at the Department of Regulatory Agencies. Uh, you would hope that they would uh, put politics aside and, and really make this a, a worthwhile operation that it is, but a worthwhile operation that runs well, as opposed to, going back to the last topic, just good intent. Natasha, after an audit like this, what do you think is the next step? 
Well, you start with a to-do list. <laughs> what do we have to clean up? I mean, I think what's interesting is this came out of a robust discussion at the Capitol about the importance of, of this, of what civil rights means to this state and why we need to have these sort of reviews. Um, and so this audit was, was part of looking at that, making sure that we were doing what we were supposed to do. And anyone should do that. Um, private business does that all the time. Let's have annual reviews. Let's talk about what's working and what's not. And the loud and clear message here is there's a lot that's not working. So I hope that the next step is to really sit down and say, what do we do to improve this? Because, again, as a state, we looked at it and said, these are civil rights that we want to preserve. So let's do that in a way that is fair and equitable and correct. Petty, uh, Governor Polis, the first openly gay governor of Colorado, he has a lot of priorities regardless of uh, his sexual orientation. But I have to imagine he's going to want to know that the Colorado Civil Rights Division was top-notch under his leadership. Do you think he's going to get personally involved? Yes, I do think he will. And it's a shame that they didn't realize they needed to start doing documentation earlier, a long time ago. Shouldn't have needed the Supreme Court. It's tricky because so many of these are personnel issues, so you have to be fairly confidential, but ultimately you should be able to come up with reports that are transparent. We've actually been the focus of a Colorado civil rights complaint by a man who was offended that we took advertisements for ladies' nights. I'm happy to say we were victorious. Uh, it is you can go, ladies, go out and drink. It's fine, uh, but they did a great job in our case. They were sensitive to the issues. They realized how laughable some of this was. But you still have to take everything very seriously and follow protocol, and document it. Michael, I think when the masterpiece cake shop case came out, people thought it was about one thing, but clearly it has uncovered quite a bit. What did you take away from what we found this week? Yeah, I mean, clear transparency problems on top of the bias problems that came out during that case. Um, you know, I think this civil rights division was already on thin ice. It was, you know, negotiated if it would uh, get funded and stay open and everything, and they got to the point where it would. But I think this uh, really sets that back in, in a lot of ways. Um, these were some pretty simple things. You know, every school board, every small school board in the, in the state knows that you can't take, you know, votes when you don't have it open to the public, open meetings rules, uh, all different kinds of stuff. Um, and the timeline, knowing that, look, these are important cases, then they should be dealt with within the statutory limits uh, of what's going on. I think, you know, you look at it, uh, every audit that's coming out from the government right now uh, seems to have some kind of issues with it. CDOT just had one that came out that was really bad for CDOT. Um, I think what I will do is give credit to the audit committee and the auditors in general because they don't hold back uh, in these reports. They say what's wrong. Uh, I wish the audit committee could run most of government, uh, you know, and so I'm glad that, that, that that's going on. And, and I want to see more of this throughout the different aspects of government. It's going to be neat to see the next campaigns. Like, elect, elect me. I was an auditor. You know, so there you go. It's time for our very favorite part of the show, Disgrace the Week. As always, Ms. Cahoon, please start us off. Well, I can say this because Westward is no longer at King's Superstores, but Kroger's across the country are pulling free publications. In Colorado Springs, the Colorado Springs Independent has launched a good campaign to allow the papers to keep distributing there, and I hope they succeed, and I hope across the country other free papers are able to distribute at Kroger's. Shame on them. Michael. Uh, I don't know if you guys saw, but there was a scooter versus cyclist fight at Cheeseman Park uh, a couple days ago. Uh, it was a disgrace that there was this big of a fight, uh, several people involved over who got the right of way. Uh, but it was a bigger disgrace how bad the fight was. So if you get a chance, check out the video. Uh, it wasn't pretty. A scooter versus bicycle fight at Cheeseman Park. It was it the cut clerk has the most Colorado thing I saw today? That's Drinking the, uh, yeah. involved. <laughs> Probably imagine. at a ladies' night. <laughs> Eric. I did see that video. It's my neighborhood. It was uh, too much. 
Uh, how about the New York Times? They did not cover themselves in glory uh, last weekend. Whatever you make of Justice Kavanaugh, don't want to get into that argument. But uh, that was a, a shoddy piece of German journalism, a hatchet job, where the reporters put in the story that this alleged new victim in, at Yale did not want to talk to the paper and does not have any recollection of the alleged incident. And somehow that was uh, deleted by the editors before they had to, uh, with embarrassed face, go reinstate it in the story. Not a good day for the New York Times. Natasha. News coming out this week that apparently we've lost three billion birds in the U.S. and Canada since the 1970s. So I, I guess it kind of reminds me of Alfred Hitchcock's, you know, classic movie, which maybe couldn't be filmed anymore, which would be the 2.0 horror version of this story. Yeah. And I'm not sure this is a disgrace week, but I want to add into it. We didn't get to it as a topic, but I, it's been a long time since I saw something so deliciously ironic that there is a primary in the Unity Party uh, nomination <laughs> fight for the U.S. Senate. Just love that so much. Time to say something nice about somebody. Patty. To counter Eric on journalism, the Colorado Sun, which pulled together a consortium of publications, media outlets across the state and did a really great report on trailer parks, the people who live there. Um, it was a really good job. And one more, unbelievable, if you haven't seen the Netflix series yet, shows it's another good piece of journalism followed up on it, but also good police work in Colorado as opposed to in Washington. Michael. Uh, mine's about journalism, too. Our friend Joey Bunch wrote an important story uh, this week about the problems in our mental health system here in Colorado, especially in rural Colorado. Um, I think this is the kind of journalism that can hope, hopefully make a difference when it comes to actual policy. You're here. Eric. Couldn't agree more with Patty on this series, The Sun Led. Uh, it's a great consortium called Parked about mobile home parks. Uh, Kyle Forty uh, is a, was a Republican political operative. I was not fortunate to know him. He died about a year ago, tragically, in a helicopter accident. His wife, now widow Hope Forty, is putting that grief to incredibly constructive purpose with a nonprofit called Foster Together to advance foster care in this state. Uh, she is a force, and it's a, a wonderful nonprofit. Natasha. As we tape across this country and in and, and the coming days, there's a lot of youth activating um, or performing activism related to climate change. So in an in a experiment of democracy that we live in, it's always nice to see young minds developing thoughts on how they want to live. The footage of the uh, young uh, woman from uh, Sweden and uh, what she was able to do in front of Congress was pretty amazing. It's a, you're, you're right. It's, a, it's encouraging. And if you didn't catch uh, last week, I wanted to remind everybody here about a new uh, partnership that we have, a group that we're partnering with all the, uh, the rest of this year and next year. Classes at the Academy for Lifelong Learning beginning this week. The Academy offers courses during the day for adults just for the love of learning. With over 40 liberal arts and current event courses to choose from, you can now learn about the subjects you slept through in college. I absolutely love that tagline. For more information, go to academyll.org. They're going to be partnering with us with our Both Sides of the Story uh, series. Uh, very excited to see that. And you're going to see the new season of Both Sides of the Story, a new season of Sounds on 29th, a new season of street-level community. It is local show Palooza in October. So whether it be a Tuesday or a Friday or a Saturday, when you're watching Colorado Public Television in October, you'll be seeing something local, something you help make happen as our member, and something brand new. Uh, so we're very excited about it, obviously. We're working with partners and
and we're hoping that you'll check it out. Again, street level on Tuesdays and Fridays. Both sides of the story is going to be right before this program on Fridays. And then, of course, New Sounds on 29th with Headroom Sessions, new local show on Saturdays. For everybody here at Colorado Inside Out and CPT12, thank you very much for watching. Good night. Well, that was... Mm-hmm.